This is unstructured. Today we have Richard Chapo. Now I'm pretty excited to get Richard on because he's an internet lawyer. Now the law can seem dry, can seem boring, but guess what? <laughs> we all have to deal with it and it can affect all of us. So I'm super excited to talk to you today, Richard. And thanks for coming on. Well, thank you for having me on. Looking forward to it. Now, from my understanding, you have a kind of a, a long, varied background in internet law. And I understand you started out in the porn industry? Uh, yes, I was actually, originally I was working for a mainstream law firm, uh, took a year off, uh, went to Russia and I came back and one of the attorneys that I had worked with in that firm had left and had become CEO of a startup company um, here in San Diego and they were in the adult field. Uh, this was in 2000. And, uh, at that time, regardless of whether it was adult or not, you know, the internet was fairly new as a commercial medium. So, uh, from a legal perspective, it was fascinating because it was, it was wide open. You know, there was no legal precedent for, uh, you know, quite a few common things, you know, how would links work, copyright, all those kinds of issues. And so I got into it from that side and, uh, yeah, as you can imagine, it was an eye opener, say the least. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's originally how I got into it. Well, it makes sense. I, I would think that porn would be a fantastic place to really learn internet law because you have all kinds of rights. Um, there's so much content. There's a, a lot of conflict, it would seem, you know, people stealing content and DCMA, things like that. No, absolutely. You're absolutely right. And you know what a lot of people don't mention and, and what maybe is kind of a little dirty secret, particularly in the legal field, is many of the legal precedents that make uh, the Internet function the way it is, precedents or court cases, uh, decisions, uh, arrive out of the porn field. Um, you know, Google um, was sued by uh, a group of publishers, you know, that were arguing, well, you know, you can't take our photos and put them in your search results, that that's copyright infringement. And this was a case that went on for years and years and years until the court, you know, Supreme Court was established. I think it was Supreme Court, maybe not that high, established that, you know, taking a, uh, you know, a small copy of a photo for purely for the purpose of listing it in a search engine um, is not. And so we have, you know, that law now that you can essentially do that and not have to worry about copyright infringement. That's a fundamental aspect of the Internet. So are things like linking, um, you know, was linking a form of copyright infringement. And that was an argument that was made by Playboy. Was, Playboy recently made it again. Um, and a lot of people, you know, would think that's just laughable. But really, you know, there are questions, um, you know, how do you apply law that has existed before the internet um, to the digital environment? Because it's a very different environment. I mean, copyright, which a lot of people, you know, hate and grind their teeth over. You know, copyright law was established hundreds of years before uh, the internet came along, so it doesn't really apply well to it. If you think about, say, 1960s, and you wanted to infringe upon, let's say, a photograph, well, how would you actually do that? You know, there would be a number of physical steps that you would have to go through to do that. Whereas if you get on the internet, you know, you right-click and <laughs> copy and <laughs> republish. And so it's much easier. And so, you know, the, the commercial world and the legal world uh, and the political world are faced with this whole new dynamic how do you how do you put legal uh, precedent in place? How do you limit some of the more egregious acts, but do so without essentially throttling the internet? And if you look across the world, you see different areas did this differently. In the U.S., it was a very pro business. There was a, a serious effort made to make the internet a viable commercial medium and to protect companies. In Europe, there was not. And so, if you look at the biggest internet companies in the world, 
almost all of them are based outside of Europe. Europe is a horrible place for doing business uh, on the internet because they don't differentiate between a company the size of, say, Facebook and, you know, your mom's tomato blog. Uh, the requirements are almost always exactly the same, and so it makes it difficult to get into that market. Um, so it is. it was very interesting to see, you know, how that, all that played out. That's interesting. That brings us into uh, fair use. I think um, you've discussed this before in other interviews, and you had made a comment about how it's a viable defense, but there are some issues. Right. Fair use is so essentially copyright. The person who creates the work, let's say Stephen King writes a book, he has the right to control the usage of that book. However, there are going to be certain fundamental um areas we are going to allow usage regardless of whether he consents or not, just because as a society, we think these are, are points that should be uh, valid. So for instance, the easiest one is a review. Um, if somebody reads the book and they say, I think the book is great. Well, obviously he's probably not going to object to that, but what if they say, this is the worst book I've ever read, you know, never read any books <laughs> from this guy. Um, you know, at that point, some people, they get reactive and they want to try to block that and they'll often try and, you know, assert copyright infringement. So a fair use defense to that is, you know, we're going to always allow criticism. Uh, we just are. It's it's valuable and important for society to see both sides of uh, the ledger. There, the problem with fair use and the, the issue that I have with it sometimes is, um, you know, you see online people throw around fair use like it is um, a simple a simple defense, uh, and in the legal paradigm, fair use is something that's used at trial. And, and people need to understand you're going to spend a lot of money <laughs> getting to trial. And if you win, uh, in most cases, you're not going to get that money back. So the, recently there was a um, YouTube spat and there were uh, a couple um, who were criticizing another person on YouTube. I can't recall their names at this point. Mm. Um, and he, he was claiming copyright infringement and filing DMCAs and everything else. And, and, you know, from the outside to me, just at a glance, it looked like, you know, they were just criticizing him. There was very valid fair use, you know, and they still had to spend 75,000 to a hundred $100,000 defending the case and they won. Um, and fortunately for them, because they were well known, they were able to, you know, essentially crowdsource the money. Um, but that defense, you know, still had to be paid. So I think people need to understand that there are some mechanical aspects of the fair use defense, uh, you know, that and cost is a provision of that. So you have to make sure that, you know, before you go down that road, you're in a financial position to do so. And the way to do that, quite simply, is make sure you have liability insurance. Uh, isn't, isn't it a fuzzy thing too? like what actually is fair use or what isn't fair use? I know there's a case out there, I believe now with Sargon of Akkad, um, a big YouTube guy, and he, essentially just took a chunk of people reacting, I think, to uh, the election, election of Trump and just played it outright right. on this channel. Yeah. Um, yes. Fair uses. <laughs> uh, there was a, going back to porn, there was a Supreme Court case where they were trying to define, well, what is pornography? And uh, one of the Supreme Court justices said, well, I know it when I see it. Um, <laughs> you know, fair use is kind of in that realm as well. You know, there are four factors that they look at. Um, you know, are some of those factors, should they be weighed more, you know, more strongly than others? And the Supreme Court said yes, and they said no. And then, you know, it's kind of all over the place. Um, so basically what they're trying to look at overall is, are you, are you just blatantly copying something and making an economic benefit off of it? Or is there some other tangible use to it? Um, you know, are you, are you creating fan fiction? You know, is fan fiction copyright infringement or not? You know, who knows? Is, hmm. is, you know, you get into these areas, um, where it's it's pretty gray, um, and so you don't necessarily um, 
well, going into a trial, I would just put it this way. It's, it's one area where it's really good to spend money on a very good attorney because the quality of your attorney will often, uh, you know, influence the output and be a major factor in that. Because if you have somebody, it's an argument, you know, we have these four factors. You're going to argue these four factors. Both sides are. Uh, and I've seen cases that I thought were fair use pretty clearly that where somebody's lost. And hmm. I've seen fair use cases where I thought, man, that's a weak fair use argument. And they won. And a lot of it is going to quite frankly come down to the quality of the attorneys on each side. Um, you know, if you think back to the OJ Simpson case, you know, that kind of a situation. Um, so it is, it is an area where there's a lot of difficulty. Um, probably the best case you know, to mention that is the dancing baby case, um, which is famous on YouTube. Uh, a woman, essentially shot a a video of her baby dancing for like 20 seconds, I think it was, and (laughs) took a sampling of a Prince song uh, as a background to the baby dancing. It was cute and everything, and the music industry sued, and it literally went on for 10 years. Wow. Uh, And with this argument over, is that fair use or not? You know, is that copyright infringement? How does all this play out? And and that gives you kind of an idea of, you know, how, how complex and how gray the area can be when you're looking at these defenses. I'm not suggesting anybody don't use a fair use as a defense. Um, the other side of that, that that a lot of people don't understand about copyright is damages uh, or something to always look at. Under copyright law, if you file, you create your work, and then you register it within 90 days of publication, you get statutory damages. You can claim statutory damages, and that allows a judge or jury to uh, issue damages of between um, $750 up to $30,000 per infringement. And if the infringement is obvious and malicious and you know just a really bad case, they can award up to $150,000 and can also award attorney's fees and costs in certain situations. Um, so the damages there can be huge. Um, now, contrast that. If you don't register um, and time passes, those initial 90 days pass, well, at that point, you really into a situation where the copyright owner has to prove actual damages. Mm. And on the internet, that becomes kind of an interesting concept because, um, you know, if you have a blog with 500 pages, well, say you have a blog with 50 pages and you copied an image off of, you know, Google search engine and published it on one of the pages and didn't realize, you know, there was this thing called copyright and you're completely obviously infringing. Well, okay, but what's the damage? You know, it's one page of 50 on your blog of a million on the internet. You know, how do you monetize that? And copyright owners have, you know, serious problems trying to monetize it um, because, because, I mean, if you went out to a stock photo site, you know, you could buy that photo probably or a similar photo for, you know, who knows what, 50 cents. Um, sure. So, <laughs> so there, there are different mechanical aspects to copyright infringement that people, you know, need to be a little, little cognizant of. But uh, yeah, fair use is certainly a defense and it's one that I would, you know, if you're really going to bank on it and you get into a dispute, I would make sure to talk to an attorney first. I have a question on, um, for example, what we're doing here. Um, this is a podcast. I'm recording. I'm recording you on it. Mm-hmm. Now, that has potential ramifications, too. Like, I'm going to release it. We, I guess, essentially have an agreement that we're recording this. It's going to be a podcast. But if I was to take content from this and, let's say, put it into a chapter of a book, you could probably come after me for that, correct? Um, yes, it's, it's somewhat of a gray area because, you know, when I agree, when I come on the podcast as a guest, I'm implicitly agreeing you know, that, that a certain amount of my, um, content production is going to be used. So what's the scope of that is really what we're asking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly with my clients, yeah, I tell them, you know, make sure that you, you have a written release or, and again, this is more the practical side of the internet. 
with copyright infringement, one of the most important things, if, if nobody takes anything else from this, one of the most important things is that if you ask nicely, people will usually let you use things. <laughs> right, uh, right. So if my clients, you know, I have clients and they say, you know, I have these 50 podcasts and I want to take things out of them. I want to make a book. You know, I say, well, do you have the release? And if they don't have the release, I say, well, go contact these people and ask them. And, you know, tell them, you know, you'll include a link to their site or whatever. Uh, you know, in the nature of the Internet, particularly on the business side, is most people, you know, they want to get their information out there. I didn't come on a podcast because I didn't want anybody to hear it, um, sure. you know. And so you have that practical side of it. And I think one of the areas, you know, there are a lot of areas of, of the legal world that people don't like. And I think one of the areas where attorneys really fall down, uh, and myself included, you know, on occasion, is you know, think about the practical side of it. Often there are simple answers, non-legal answers to some of the legal disputes that you see out there. Um, and, and these things, you know, these little disputes grow into these mountains of you know, litigation and you know, money being spent right and left when they really didn't need to. Um, so in that situation, yeah, with this, you know, I mean, practically speaking, I, I would probably never come back and complain about a book because for me it's free publicity. Um, but if I did for some reason, yeah, there could be, you know, questions there. Um, you know, in reality, you know, how big of an issue is that? Probably pretty small. Now, another, th another consideration is I might get into an interview with somebody and we get really deep into a topic and they accidentally, let's say, reveal more information than they intended to. Mm. Now, personally, I'll just take it out. I don't really care. I don't want people to feel bad or look bad, but potentially speaking, you know, what is the recourse or what if I publish an interview and then three weeks later they say, Oh, I hate that. I don't want that out there. I, I, I want that removed. Oh, uh, that's a good question. Well, generally if, if they're disclosing it, I mean, they've disclosed it and they don't have any right to confidentiality or privacy unless there was some kind of, you know, alternative agreement, particularly in writing. I mean, that would be my view. Now, again, I think the practical side of it, which you point out, which is absolutely correct is, you know, why wouldn't you take it out? I mean, unless there was some magic, you know, nugget in there. Um, and I'll be honest with you, I've had podcasts in the past where I've actually done that, where I've said something that I thought mm, afterwards, maybe not. Uh, you know, I'll give you an example. I've, you know, my brother works at Facebook. Uh, hmm. and so sometimes I, you know, have an idea of what they're up to. Um, you know, and, and I've thought, you know, eh, you know, I don't want that in the podcast. And I've contacted the podcaster and they've been nice enough to take it out. Um, I would think from a practical aspect, if you're running a podcast, you want to continue to have guests, that should probably be your policy. Um, but you know, as far as could you use that? Well, if they disclose it to you, it's like an interview with a journalist, in my opinion, you know, if they disclose it, that's on them. Um, but again, yeah, the practical aspect of it, I'd be a little careful. Well, cool. Um, hopefully I won't get you in trouble with Facebook, but that is actually a topic I wanted to get into is Facebook and Twitter and well, actually we could throw them in YouTube and censorship. Now, there are those who are currently suing, um, one of them I believe is PragerU, about their content being, um, if not outright removed or taken down, having adult restrictions put on it, even though there's no swearing or anything like that, which right. affects their, their bottom line and their business. And they're saying, you know, you're freezing voices due to a political bent. Right. Well, let me start off by saying I'm not a constitutional law attorney, so there are areas of this where um, I would defer. Generally speaking, I think one of the the bigger issues that um, really details the entire internet, not just in this 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 particular niche, um, but as a concern for everybody, 
or at least an issue that needs to be looked at is, you know, you have these large mediums. I mean, Facebook and Twitter, um, you know, and YouTube, if you've, you know, if YouTube is your marketing channel and you've put out a hundred videos and they close your channel, well, <laughs> you know, that's, that's incredibly damaging. Um, so there are real questions about monopolies and things of this sort, um, you know, that, that really are only going to be solved at the political level. Um, you know, how big can these companies get uh, before they're de facto in so much control of everything um, that they constitute uh, essentially you know, monopolies in an antitrust environment. And in the U.S., we're not there primarily because the FTC is, is um, I can't use the corrupt word, is, um, <laughs> they're, not, they're not that, but the, the lobbying and the people that, that you know, are involved in that, they just, they just haven't shown any taste for filing any significant enforcement action. So if we give you an example, Google got caught um, uh, allegedly uh, tracking people through the Apple Safari uh, browser. And mm. uh, which if you and I did, we would now be doing this podcast from jail. And the FTC fined them, I think it was something like $24 million. That's a rounding error. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So um, some of Google's uh, tactics, not that one, but tactics such as, you know, listing their own products or their own platforms at the top of their search results um, were contested in Europe. And the Europeans took a much more... Um, aggressive view towards Google's practices. And they ended up finding them something like $2.8 billion uh, for antitrust here um, earlier this year. Now that number is probably going to get Google's attention a little bit more than the $24 million fine. Um, And Google's been directed to change the way that they show their results in Europe. And so you're going to see, you know, fundamentally different, different uh, view there. So you have these different aspects as far as, you know, the free speech and things of that sort. Important thing to understand is these are private companies. They're not governments. And so free speech doesn't really apply. However, if these entities grow to a size where they're, they're viewed essentially as, you know, fundamental pillars of society, um, you know, then those arguments can be made by creative attorneys. Uh, And again, this wouldn't be an area that I'd specialize in, but there there are arguments to be made there. The questions, the big questions though, that you're getting into, um, you know, the internet is going through something I call the splinter net. Now where we're seeing it really start to, break into different regions, but you know, what are the values of a particular market? So in the U S free speech is very valuable. And so the question of, you know, are they censoring content is a viable one. If we go to Turkey, um, you know, we're not even having this conversation because Turkey, right. (laughs) So they, they censor all the time. So how do you address that online? Um, you know, how does, how does a company address that online? Does Facebook just show a completely different site and, you know, Turkey or China or wherever. Um, and that's what you're starting to see. So, you know, what's going to happen with the censorship, it's going to be a lot of yelling and screaming, a lot of publicity. Um, and I imagine, you know, that these companies will pull back a little bit, um, you know, on what they're doing. Um, but, you know, I think the important thing for people to understand is forgetting free speech for a moment. This is true. In any other aspect. So, for instance, I have people call me up. Um, let's talk about the DMCA real quick. So, with the DMCA, um, somebody files a complaint against, let's say, your channel on YouTube. Um, mm-hmm. If they file more than a certain number of complaints, they're what's known as a repeat infringer under the law. And at that point, that website, YouTube or any other site, is supposed to terminate their account. Okay. Yes. Well, exactly. You can see where this is going. So, the problem that you run into is, you know, if... YouTube tends to look at these things a little more strict than, say, you know, an Instagram or Facebook. 
Um, you know, but you're getting into essentially an area of, you know, content control. Now that can either be by the platform itself. Uh, and you'll see, you know, particularly with, um, uh, you know, some of them, they, they'll be very aggressive at closing them, or it can be with your competitors, um, whether those competitors be economic or political or whatever. Um, because I know if I get a bunch of people and we just start filing complaints against your channel. So you can weaponize it. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so, you know, censorship both by the platforms and also as you know, by third parties is definitely a growing issue. Um, Alex Jones, you know, is really somebody to kind of look at, uh, you know, he's a conservative conspiracy theorist guy. It's a nutcase, but, he, but he's he, first, but he's being, <laughs> yeah, but he's, you know, the question is, okay, he's a nutcase. Do we allow these views to be heard? Uh, and then we just, you know, and hopefully most people recognize them for what they are, or do we, you know, go ahead and censor them and what you're seeing and, you know, I, I don't particularly agree with his views, but what you're seeing is he's being censored. Yeah. It's troubling though, because while he's an easy target, everybody say, yeah, he's crazy. What about Howard Stern? Maybe he'll be next. Or well, now that's, else. that's exactly it. Now you're pointing the key issue to this and people, with this issue, they get fired up because they're looking at the target. And the important thing is not to look at the target, but to look at the process. Because you're exactly right. You know, President Trump is in office today. Okay, well, um, you know, people get fired up about the conservative websites and this and the other. Okay, well, what about, you know, we go through the natural evolution and eventually a Democrat is president. Okay, and then they start going after, you know, uh, people start looking at, you know, the liberal extremes and, and this kind of a thing. Where do you draw those lines? Uh, and again, in the U.S., I mean, you know, it's kind of the irony of the world is we had seemed to have this 50-50 split in the, you know, mm-hmm. as far as people's views. Um, and, you know, once you start going down that line of who should be censored and who shouldn't, that's, that's a dangerous slope. That's really dangerous because usually you don't expand on that. You only keep contracting. Uh, and you're right, Howard Stern, you know, if you were in certain communities, they're very conservative communities in certain parts of the U.S. where Howard Stern would absolutely be considered obscene. Exactly. So do they set the national standard? They might give them a chance. I mean, and it's it's a bipartisan thing, too. I mean, it was Tipper Gore who went after all, a music. Right. Yeah. And, and again, it's also, um, you know, this was something, obviously, in the pornography niche, which was a huge concern. Um, because there's something known as forum shopping, which happens in the law, not just in, in that field, in all fields. If you're going to file a lawsuit against somebody, you just don't go down the street and file the lawsuit. You look at the courts, and you're looking at the different court districts and different judges, and you're trying to find an area where, where the courts are going to be most receptive to your views. East Texas, getting into patent trolls now. Cool. Right. Or in California, <laughs> if you if you have a societal issue and you, you, you're trying to advocate a liberal position, you want to get in front of the Ninth Circuit. Uh, you know, the federal court here in California, because they're very liberal, uh, you know, and, and the Supreme Court is always reversing their, their decisions. Um, but, you know, but that's the court you're going to try and get in front of. And so you're going to form shop for that. And pornography, it was the same. Well, a massive amount of pornography cases were filed in Pennsylvania because there were, you know, very conservative communities there. Uh, you know, and that's just the way it is. But now we also have to think about it on the worldwide scope. One, something that happened recently that a lot of people just, you know, did took no account of and just shocked me was ICANN. ICANN is uh, essentially the controller of you know domains and a lot of the infrastructure uh, mm-hmm. at that level for the internet. Well, 
many people didn't really understand that. Although ICANN is a nonprofit, it was actually kind of controlled by the U.S. Um, I think it was the Department of Commerce, maybe Department of Energy, one of the two, uh, essentially was kind of overseeing it. Now, they didn't actually do anything, uh, and ICANN functioned as it wanted, but, um, you know, that was always there. Well, you know, two years ago, that that control of ICANN was transferred out of the U.S. into an international community. And the problem, the problem that you have, or the potential problem, is well, okay, who's that international community? If you get a majority of, of people, you know, that think that you know free speech isn't really very important, you know, does that result in ICANN taking a position that um, maybe starts restricting content uh, or not? You're already seeing ICANN. What we've discovered about ICANN is they are absolutely clueless about legal issues. Um, you know, the GDPR was just launched in Europe. And ICANN is violating it. <laughs> and, and, and the authorities have told them, even before the GDPR went into effect, you can't do this under the GDPR. Um, and I happen to think the authorities are wrong uh, in their approach. But nonetheless, ICANN was told this, and ICANN's response was just to keep filing lawsuits in Europe, even though they keep getting shut down. And, and it's from a legal perspective, you look at them and, you know, what are you doing? Um, <laughs> you know, and so, so and in Europe, for instance, you know, you can't go to a, a domain register and look up who is, um, because who has that violates the privacy rights of people in Europe. Uh, That's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> yes. No, no, it's, it's, it's a free for all for, you know, copyright infringement. Oh it's, my God. Europe is the uh, Europeans that just some of the daftest people you've ever met. Great place to visit. Lovely, you know, lovely places and really nice people. But the bureaucrats in the EU, seriously, some of the biggest idiots you have ever met in your life. Um, so yeah, in the, the EU, so for people that are listening, the reason why we're talking about that, and why that's important is if somebody steals your content online, mm-hmm. one of the first things you do is go look up their domain to see who owns it and who the servers are, because that's who you can go attack to try to get your, you get your content taken down. Well, in in Europe now, if you go to a domain register and you try to look up who is, there's no results because Europe now says, well, that would violate the privacy of those people, even though most of them are even, yeah, even though most of them are ripping you off. Um, (laughs) So we're protecting the criminals Um, for people that have had their content stolen online, which is pretty much everybody. Yes, it's slightly infuriating. That actually leads into some more questions that I had. Um, like one, I've seen this happening to different people. Um, um, a good example is recently uh, Susan Bennett is uh, the voice of Siri, the original voice. She mm-hmm. has a verified Twitter account. I noticed that some of my friends were following Susan Bennett. Same picture, same everything. But it wasn't her account. Uh, you know, I, I know her friend who deals with her. And I was like, hey, did you something happen here? Did you set up a new one? And I've seen this on Facebook, too. People are doing spoof accounts of other people. And I'm wondering if you know, why are they doing that? Um, I would imagine they're just trying to monetize it in some way. Um, typically online, unless you're dealing with a political issue, you know, it's very much the same approach is offline, which is follow the money. Um, whether they're either generating enough followers, you know, that they can say to advertisers, you know, I'm an influencer or something of that sort, um, or they can just directly sell uh, something that's either legitimate or nefarious. Um, you know, one of the things that we saw in the online adult industry was that, um, you know, with the tube sites or all these tube sites were not just tube sites, there were tons of sites uh, where you could get free adult content. You could see like a short clip or something of that sort. 
a lot of that, those clips had malware embedded in them. Uh, and people would download these things thinking, you know, Hey, you know, free porn or whatever. Um, and they download this thing and suddenly on their computer, they have, um, you know, a module that would sit there and the more sophisticated modules would just sit there. They wouldn't activate. So they wouldn't trick your antivirus. Uh, and maybe they would sit there and wait and look for certain programs to go out of date, um, you know, not be updated or whatever, and take advantage of those or all kinds of sophisticated things that can be done through the you know, dark web and those, those platforms. Um, so maybe something like that. Uh, it just kind of depends what their specific goal is. Are there, are there any real consequences out there for anyone or is it just too difficult to litigate? No, there are definitely real consequences. There are some companies um, that, you know, uh, take the position, you know, come hell or high water, we don't care what it costs. We're going to make it very clear that we're going to litigate everything uh, to try to, you know, essentially get people to to stop, um, you know, stealing their content or doing whatever it is that's, that's driving that company um, crazy. And, you know, and that is definitely an approach. Uh, the problem that you find is the nature of the Internet, uh, particularly, you know, the transactions on the Internet, the value of each one of those typically isn't particularly high. We're not talking about buying a house where there's you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars involved. Um, and so, yeah, there is a very fundamental question about finances. You know, what are we going to spend um, to recover this particular? What if uh, they're in Russia? And that's definitely a problem. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like they're in Russia and they're scamming me. Uh, they're in Nigeria and they're scamming me. What can you do about it? Really? Not much. Um, you know, you can file to try to block them, you know, but even then they're just going to switch to a different, uh, you know, different pipe or whatever. It's no, you're absolutely right. It's difficult if you get into one of those situations. Um, you know, it can be very frustrating, um, trying to go directly to that country, to somebody in that country to deal with it sometimes works. Um, of course you have to do that with the full knowledge that, Exactly how they deal with those issues is a little different than the way we do here. Um, you know, once you get that ball rolling, it's often difficult to stop. Uh, you know, it just, it, yeah, it's unfortunately, this is some of the stuff that you run into. Um, China, China's a little better now than it was. Um, but, you know, China's hacking system is kind of sanctioned by the government. And, um, you know, that, that makes it tough to fight. Um, but if you know, obviously, if you're a large company with heavy resources, you know you can always at least make it as annoying as possible for these groups. Hmm. Now, um, that also brings me to some other questions, um, especially on Facebook, Twitter, things like that. Defamation of character. Mm-hmm. Do people have much real recourse, or are these opinions, and you really can't say much? Uh, it, it depends on the specific statement. Um, the way defamation works online is there's a law called the Communication Decency Act. It's established in, I think, 1998. It's a federal law, and uh, it gives the platforms uh, immunity from defamation claims. But it doesn't give the person who's making the statement immunity. And so essentially what happens is either you have to figure out how to identify that person potentially through a subpoena or if you just know who it is, and then you can go after them. And then you get into the basic question of, you know, defamation is an opinion versus a factual statement. Um, you know, it, just, it literally just depends on the specific statements being made and you know, the damage caused to you. But defamation is, you know, it's a viable claim. We're also seeing Section 230 uh, trimmed away. Uh, that immunity. So it, it hasn't really been trimmed away in a, a manner that you and I would use. Um, it's mostly been dealing with, 
sex trafficking, things of all, of all issues. Um, but uh, there's a suspicion that Section 230 may go away at some point here in the future. And if it does, at that point, um, you know, the websites would be potentially liable for those defamatory statements. And if you're concerned about censorship now, <laughs> hmm. imagine what's going to happen then when Twitter is suddenly on the hook for something that somebody says. Um, you know, it's going to be, we're, we're looking at just some foundational aspects of the internet and, you know, should they change now? I mean, when they were issued in 1999, you have to remember back then, you know, there was no Facebook, um, you know, right. 99 Google may have still been called back rub. I don't even know, you know, it was <laughs> a very primitive time. And so these laws were put into place to try to foster growth. Right. Uh, AOL so, years. Right, exactly. Yeah, you know the, the dialogue. So here we are, twenty years later, and the question now is: Okay, well, are those principles still valid now, um, or should they be modified or done away with? Because obviously, the internet is growing into a pretty established commercial medium. Um, you know, and if they are changed, how do we how do we address that between the Facebooks of the world and between startups? Um, you know, and again, Europe still even to this day doesn't make allocations for startups or for small companies. They, they, the regulations that they issue, which are based on some good concepts. I mean, people probably should have more control over their information, but they just don't distinguish between a startup and a Twitter. Um, and so the irony of it is, although Europe's really anti the big American online companies, they're actually helping those companies dominate the market because it's very difficult for small companies to come in and compete. Right. That's why you can always tell because when the big companies are supporting something, you're going, hmm, why? Right. So now, yeah, privacy law in the U.S., you know, we have no national privacy law. And to be honest, privacy in the U.S. is kind of a joke and has been for a long time. Uh, and now you see the tech companies, big tech companies coming out and they're saying, you know, we're encouraging Congress to do a national federal privacy law. And for a lot of us who deal with smaller clients, you know, you would think we might be happy about that because we don't want every state passing their own thing. But it's actually kind of worrying because you know, I'm almost sure that that code is going to be written in a manner that's going to favor the big boys, and you know, very little thought's going to be given to the you know the small guys. Um, so we'll just kind of have to see what it says. But yeah, no, yeah, you're absolutely right. That actually leads into another question that um, people in my group put forth, but um, privacy mm -hmm. by default. Do we all consent to having our activity watched simply by using the internet? Uh, in the U.S., yes. Wow. And is there a way to not have your footsteps tracked, especially by Big Brother? Mm. <laughs> well, in theory there is, but in reality, by Big Brother, no. I, I mean, Big Brother is going to siphon up data. You know, and They're just going to. Uh, there really isn't any legal steps you can take to try to stop them. This is kind of the cost of, you know, being a citizen on the commercial side, you know, you can take technological steps where you go into your browsers and what have you. Um, you can also, you know, use platforms that are going to prevent that, you know, search engines, duck, duck, go, um, or you can use, you know, VPNs will help, uh, virtual private networks, companies like express VPN, they're, it's like 12 bucks a month or something. Um, you know, and you can take those kinds of practical standpoints. You can also contact the companies and tell them you want to opt out. Uh, you know, how well does that actually work? I don't know. Um, I have doubts. Uh, now contrast that with Europe. Europe's new privacy law, general data protection regulation. The answer would be um, no. You know, you don't consent to being tracked when you go online. 
It's just a completely different view. And what you see is companies now have to have a legal basis to collect personal information from you uh, if you're located in Europe. And there's you know a number of different legal bases, but most of them boil down to uh, is there a contractual reason, i.e. you're purchasing something? Uh, is there a legal obligation? Um, the site has to make a, a collect information, disclose it, you know, because of a legal claim, such as let's say a, a subpoena, uh, or is do you have consent? And um, so, if, you know, since May, people listening have probably noticed they go to sites and they're seeing more cookie oh, pop-ups. God, yeah. Okay, yeah, you've well, gone to every site you've ever been to through your email lately. Right. So that's what all that's about <laughs> is they're trying to get consent um, so that they they can comply with the GDPR. The problem with the GDPR is that it's so vast that I'm not even sure that that really works. Nobody's really even sure. Um, and so there's going to be years of arguments about what is you know consent and what is not. But theoretically, if you're in Europe, um, you know that's going to apply. The reason people are seeing it in the U.S. and other places is the tools that these sites are using are not sophisticated. They don't differentiate between Europe and the U.S. There are some tools that do, uh, and that's kind of where we'll move in the future. Is um, you know there'll be a lot of tools and applications to the GDPR and others um, to other areas. But it's also creating somewhat of an economic uh, censorship, if you will, because um, let's say you, you have an online business in the U.S. and you look at your stats and you look at your finances and you realize you're making 20 sales a year to people in Europe. Well, do you want to spend the time and money and aggravation on compliance? Um, you block with, Europe. Or do you block them? Exactly. And now yeah. blo- blocking is something that most people listening are probably thinking, oh, come on. Um, but May 25th, when the GDPR went into effect, you know, thousands of newspapers in the U.S. blocked the G- blocked Europe. You can't see the L.A. Times in Europe. Um, retailers blocked them, exporting goods. And the reason that they were blocked was, you know, that whole calculation. So with newspapers, it's a little different because they, you know, they have so much so much difficulty monetizing their content that most of them sure. are using a cookie-based system. Well, the, that system just doesn't fit under the GDPR. It's just not viable. Uh, and so for them, it's just cheaper to block, even though they're losing even more audience. Um, you know, they just don't really have any alternative. And unfortunately, you know, Europe doesn't really think of those things, um, you know, and the potential costs. Because for them, privacy is, is a fundamental right. It's part of their charter. that They treat it like we treat free speech. It has that value to them. And so, um, you know, I tell the joke about France. Well, it's not a joke, but it's an example of kind of an extreme situation. You know, if you have kids and you go on Facebook and you have family, uh, you know, around the world, and you post pictures of your kids' birthdays, and your kids are you know minors. Um, if you were in France, you violated the law. You can go to jail for up to a year or be fined. Really, five thousand francs. Yeah. Now they're not doing this, but but it is a law. And the reason is you violated the privacy of your children. The thing is that yeah, you're right. They may not be, but there's so many laws out there. I believe everybody's breaking the law every day, and if they wanted somebody wanted to come after you, they could. Yes. And that's scary. It is. But the reality of it, I, I'll tell you, there's <clears throat> practical realities. Um, you know, lawyers, when they do podcasts and things, I like to scare people because it, it raises money. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but the practical reality of it is, you know, if France tried to enforce that against somebody in the U.S. or something of that sort, you know, a judge is going to go, no, uh, you know, get out of my courtroom. Um, you know, so there are some practical aspects we have to keep in mind with these things. You know, if you have a blog, <clears throat> you know, that has 20 visitors a month, um, you know, or you're writing, you know, your great American novel or whatever it is, um, you know, 
and you have some traffic from Europe, you know, do you have to comply with the GDPR? Well, there's an analysis that can be done there. Is somebody at a regulatory agency in Europe going to spend time and money hunting you down? You know, the chances are so remote, um, you know, that you should be as equally concerned as, you know, an engine falling off of a, you know, an airliner and landing on your house. Um, so, (laughs) So there are practical aspects to this. I think the key thing for people to think about, you know, is, is not to be terrified by what we're discussing, but just to realize there are these issues out there. And if you're, you know, if you're starting an online business um, or any business offline, you know, you should always confer with two people, one, an accountant uh, and two, an attorney. And, you know, the fees for both are deductible. Um, with the attorney, you can usually get a free consult and, you know, they'll give you kind of an idea of, you know, if there's any issues with your business model. And, you know, you want to be able to address those up ahead and know what the risk is and plan accordingly. And with the CPA, you want to just make sure that you're, you're sitting yourself up in such a manner that you can get, you know, the most benefit possible, um, you know, under the tax code. And there, you know, there are quite a few benefits that are out there now. You have the new Trump tax uh, benefit for pass-throughs and, you know, all kinds of things. So um, you always just talk with those two people. But, I mean, if you're considering going into business and you're hearing all this and thinking, I don't want to deal with that, you know, the, that's not a reason not to go into business. Um, you know, don't let this uh, get you down or anything of that sort. But just, you know, understand that there are some interesting issues going on, particularly with the evolution of the Internet. Now, um, there's other questions too. Like, I know that there's a big concern of uh, privacy on, on like Facebook, and uh, Facebook came out and said, "Yes, you can remove all of your data on Facebook," but that's not actually true, is it? I have doubts. Um, I don't know about their internal <laughs> activities, but I think that you should take the view that if you're using these platforms, that they're they have your data. Right. Well, and one one way I can think of it is that. If I remove my account, that's fine. But anybody else who has shared, let's say, something that I've put out there, that's now part of their account, too. Um, kind of backfill a picture on me. Right. You know, honestly, I don't know how, how they would address that. Um, I would imagine they have some thoughts about it. I think the, the bigger concern is that, you know, they're going to have you as a collection of um, their advertising data. Um, so for people who have never advertised on Facebook, it's really rather shocking. Um, you can go Very in and targeted. <laughs> yes, it is extremely targeted. You can pick a wide variety of parameters uh, that may seem esoteric to you, put them into the Google, into the Facebook system, and they will return a list of people that you can advertise to that fit those parameters. Um, you know, it's not all encompassing, but it is pretty shocking how, how granular it gets. Um, and so I would think that your information is part of that, you know, whether that can be parsed out or what have you is, you know, a, a whole different game. Um, but I would be very surprised if they were getting rid of that. Um, yeah, as far as people backfilling, yeah. Um, you know, it's probably true to some extent. I, I honestly don't know. Wasn't well, that, that old saying true though, that if, if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. Absolutely. hundred percent. And people should understand that there is nothing free on the internet. Now, to wrap things up, I want to go another direction, and I think it's a, a going to be a, a much bigger concern as we go down the line. Cannabis and CBD and selling over the internet. <laughs> oh, lordy. Um, okay, well, again, caveat, I'm not a specialist in this area, but what I can tell you is, yeah, I mean, you have 
situation with, you know, if we're talking about cannabis, if you're talking about, you know, the smokable version of that, it's still illegal under federal law. Right. Uh, and states have obviously legalized it. Um, and there's, you know, how do you, how do you marry those two concepts? And to be honest, there's no good answer. Um, you even look at cannabis producers, you know, and they have problems with, you know, the money that they bring in or the retail shops, you know, if it's paid in cash, how do you, how do you handle that? Cause some banks, a lot of banks won't take it because they're concerned that they're violating banking laws um, regarding money laundering and, and things of that sort, because there are laws out there that were designed to, you know, prohibit drug dealers from particularly the larger guys from, you know, using the U S banking system. Um, and so that's obviously a fundamental problem. Selling across the web, you know, it's, it's just oof, the number of problems that you're facing there. You know, how do, what if you sell into, uh, you make a mistake and sell into a state where it's not legal? Um, what happens if that product moves across the borders from one state where it's legal to it's not legal and then to, you know, the final destination where it is legal? You're getting into, you know, federal commerce issues there. Um, and then what is illegal and what is not? Um, you know, with the essential oils and these oils, you know, CBD, I, I know can be bought or online in all 50 states, right. but apparently there are, there are high risk processing fees involved. Like the credit card companies will charge like 10 to 20% versus the two or three things like that. I didn't know if you, had no, I'm not familiar with it, but it wouldn't surprise me. Um, when the adult industry online was getting established, it was the same thing. Uh, you know, all transactions were viewed as high risk, particularly because um, so many of the people that were involved in the adult industry were, <laughs> were pulling, pulling questionable billing practices. Let's put it this way. Uh, there used to be the old, uh, you know, join for three days free or for three days for a dollar ninety five, and then you know, then we'll charge your credit card, and then it was near impossible to figure out how to you know get out of the site. Uh, you know, and then they charge your, your card thirty nine ninety nine every three days. Um, and so you ran into that kind of a situation uh, where there is a high political risk. There's almost always going to be a high financial cost. Mm. And, and so, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised at all by that. Now, Visa and MasterCard and these groups, they will um, classify uh, particular areas of transactions as low risk, high risk, what have you, and, and apply the you know particular rates. The chargebacks on it are probably also uh, vicious, I would imagine. Um, what happened in the adult industry is you saw people moving towards uh, international um, finances. A lot of money was pushed through Israel, of all places, um, <laughs> even, even some through the Middle East, you know, where you have some rather uh, conservative religious views. Uh, you'd be shocked to find some of the banks there were doing that. Um, banks in general, the religious view in most banks seems to be make as much money as possible, and that's kind of the fundamental thing. Um so, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me at all. Um, but there are going to be issues there, particularly because didn't VP Pence come out and say that they were going to try to prosecute um, um, the marijuana industry? I think I, thought I saw something past a couple months ago where he was. Uh, I think Sessions came out and said, essentially, we're going to enforce the laws that we have on the books. Right. I so, do wonder, though, it actually may be helpful because I kind of personally, and I'm not a lawyer, so. I'm definitely talking out of out of my butt, I guess. Um, <laughs> I, I feel like we have a constitutional crisis coming up on this because if you're in Washington, Oregon, California, all three states, it's completely legal, right? Right. But if I take my supply from California across the state line to Oregon, I just broke federal law. Right. And that's crazy. And then it's like, okay, well, how do you get the product in? 
You fly it in, that's federal airspace. Um, Washington, D.C., I guess it's legal now. I'm like, okay, and how is anybody getting it there? Well, yeah, I mean, you're pointing to the concept, basically, you know, federalism. Uh, and the irony of this is um, the different political groups are all in favor of state rights so far as it supports a particular issue they're interested in. Uh, so traditionally, Republicans have been uh, very uh, in favor of state rights and limiting federal government, cutting back on federal government. Um, but then when the states, like in this situation, have legalized marijuana, then they're not so interested in state rights. Um, and that's not to pick on the Republicans. The Democrats well, both do, sides it. do it. Yeah, they both, sides, both do sides do it completely. Um, and so you get into these questions. You're absolutely right. How are these uh, cases decided? And this is really kind of why the Supreme Court, um, you know, in the current uh, effort to get uh, Kavanaugh onto the court, you know, whatever you may think of that, pro or negative, that's why these are important discussions. Because ultimately, it's really the Supreme Court that will you know decide these issues. Um, and, you know, it's hard to know which direction they would go. Traditionally, this court has been more in favor of state rights, but they're also, uh, wouldn't really be stretching things to say, I imagine they probably don't have a favorable view of marijuana. Um, so, you know, how are they going to decide that? And, um, you know, in the legal field, it's, it's somewhat funny, you know, lawyers are always trying to be so serious, but I mean, most lawyers were honest reading some of the Supreme court decisions are pretty funny because, you know, they'll have a majority and the majority will get a case where the facts don't really match their personal views and they'll, they'll strain to come up with a reason to support Mm -hmm. or, you know, not support a law, Obamacare, you know, Robert's decision, whether you're for Obamacare or against it, his decision was completely, yeah, it was just, what? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Nobody had even made the argument in court. He just, you know, out of the blue. Um, And he was doing that because, you know, the Supreme court traditionally, um, you know, people get mad about the lifetime terms, but one of the reasons that's there is to kind of insulate the Supreme court from temporary political, um, or societal upheavals or passions, if you will, uh, you know, right. to try to keep things a little more moderate. So traditionally, Supreme Courts move very slowly on changing things. So even if the Supreme Court was, let's say, to reverse Roe v. Wade, I'd be shocked if they did it in the next five years. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's unlikely. I, right. I don't know. They would do it. Yeah, it's unlikely because it's so established. Was it um, Stardysis or something like that? Right. Well, it's not even that. It's just that there's so much case law now based on that, that if you were, and even in non-abortion areas, uh, if you were to change that, you're radically changing huge amounts of the law and a ton of issues would have to be reheard and redone. Now they'll do it. I, I mean, I, you know, if they think that that's the way to go, they'll do it. But even if they do, they typically would probably, uh, you know, limit, place limits on it first and, you know, it would drag out and drag out and you'd get it 10 or 15 years in the future before they, they took that step. Um, but nonetheless, it is very important, you know, to watch the Supreme Court justices and who's getting on there because these are the kinds of issues they're going to decide, you know, whether it's, you know, hot button topic like marijuana or state rights or, you know, can the feds prosecute this or that? Um, even in things from, you know, setting up political districts, which is incredibly boring, but which is well, gerrymandering is huge. Yeah, it's a huge issue. <laughs> it's a massive issue. Um, you know, and it's, it's a way to fix the system essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, then people find it boring and I'll be honest with you, I find it boring, but it is an incredibly important issue. Um, because if you can fix the voter system, you know, configure it in such a way that, you know, you're almost always going to get one political party in, you know, you essentially kill the two party system because, you know, those people are all there and they're just, you know, 
internal bureaucrats. So you bring up a good point. Um, a lot of manipulation happens in the boring. Yes. That's almost like the perfect cover is to make it as boring and stultifying as possible. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the, one of the areas that, you know, if you really want to get infuriated is social security, you know, and people, you know, the, the favorite political vow is to scream, you know, social security is you know wasteful and it's in debt and we should, you know, kill it or, or limit it or whatever. But if you actually look at social security, it's a valuable program. Yeah. There's some ways, but as a percentage of overall use, it's very low. It's actually one of the more successful government programs. So why is it in bankruptcy basically, or why is it having so many funding problems? Well, because Congress has been stealing money out of it for 30 years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, both parties and, yeah, both parties, both parties, not, not one party or the other, you know, they just suck the surpluses out and, you know, uh, and so, you know, if you're taking the funding away, um, you know, and, and years when you're going to have a surplus, uh, you know, of contributions, well, then the years where you don't have the surplus or you don't meet, you know, the necessary contribution and you have a deficit, you know, they're not putting money back in. Um, and so, you know, it slowly goes bankrupt and there's actually a cabinet somewhere where they have, you know, written IOUs essentially from, you know, the U S government <laughs> to the social security trust fund, you know, and it's like, really, you know, again, one of those things that, you know, if you and I did it and we got audited, we'd probably be, you know, staring at the jail cell for a while, but, uh, yeah, you know, it's government. Wow. Now to wrap it, everything up, I have one final question. What? is the one defense that we all should take into consideration when we're online? The one defense or one active, I guess I'd say, what are we doing wrong now as people that we can really get in trouble for doing? Uh, you know, I think the nature of the internet, even with all the different legal risks, there really isn't anything that you're doing wrong. The only thing I would, I would caution people about is, um, you know, if you, put it online, whether it's a text statement, a video, whatever it is, you should assume it's there and can be found forever. (laughs) Um, Digital stone. I think somebody referred to it as, yeah. You know, I mean, there's, um, you know, a lot of people don't even realize there's a site called, uh, well, it's not a site, but the name of it is the way, way back machine. Mm -hmm. And all it does is go out and make copies of websites. So if you have a blog, you know, they've said some, you know, crazy things about, uh, you know, on, you know, that's fine and all, as long as you're willing to stick by them for the next 40 years. I mean, we're looking at the Supreme Court, uh, you know, this guy up for the Supreme Court now, and we're looking at, you know, allegations from however long ago. And there's, you know, is there objective evidence, you know, it's you know, very hazy. Well, think about 30 years from now with the Internet. Mm-hmm. We, we, we may literally be able to unable to get a single person onto the Supreme court <laughs> because, or we'll have nothing but Trump's because yeah. it's all baked in. Right. Because there's this huge <laughs> record now of things everybody did. And I'll be honest, you know, I'm in my fifties. If the internet had existed, you know, when I was a teen or in my twenties okay. or in college, when I thought, you know, booze was one of the four food groups. Oh my God. I'd be in so much trouble. You know I mean? It's, it's, I can't even imagine, um, you know, and so we have this, this record now that's out there. And so you have to be very careful and just remember, you know, your whatever you may feel strongly about now, particularly if you're younger, um, you know, in 30 years, it may not be quite as important to you as you thought it was. Um, and so, you know, if there's a record out there of you doing this out of the other, 
I can come back to haunt you. Um, I do actually think, believe it or not, and I'm in the minority here, that we are going to eventually see federal law, probably in most countries, which is going to make it illegal to look at um, you know, certain past digital documentation after a certain period of time, maybe five or 10 years, because literally, literally society could grind to a halt. Who's going to be able to get a job? Um, you know, you may not drink ever in that one 4th of July party you went to and had a couple of beers and there's a picture of you, you know, hanging upside down from <laughs> stairwell or something, you know, sure. I mean, it's literally, you know, that kind of a, a situation. So I would think, you know, practically speaking, that would probably be the biggest concern that people should have. Well, that's that's great advice. Now, can pe- people can find you at uh, socialinternetlawyer.com, correct? Uh, it's actually SoCal, like Southern California. Oh, SoCal. Uh, yeah, SoCalInternetLawyer.com, or I'm on LinkedIn all the time. You can uh, find me. It's just Richard Chapo, C-H-A-P-O, and uh, I'll be happy to hook up with you at either place. Excellent. Hey, and thank you so much for coming on. That was a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Hi, I'm Tyson Franklin, the host of It's No Secret with Dr. T, which is a small business and marketing podcast. Each week, I interview business leaders who openly share the secrets to the massive success. It's No Secret with Dr. T will educate, entertain, and inspire you. Check it out. You'll find it wherever you listen to podcasts, or you can go to my website, TysonFranklin.com.